0: this is guns and butter
1: I think
2: Kubrick is consistently telling us about the real power structure throughout his films and and then to what degree throughout his life Kubrick had to cooperate with the power structure like with NASA and the Air Force in making 2001, you know, that's all fine and well. But I think that, you know, when we see something like Eyes Wide Shut, I, I think it's a direct illustration of, as I said, the real power structure. So it's not um, politicians, it's not presidents. These are, as Dr. Carol Quigley said, frontmen. They're, they're, they're the people who give the masses the impression that they have a boat, that they have power. When in fact, the world is actually run by far more wealthy people oligarchs essentially
0: i'm bonnie faulkner today on guns and butter jay dyer today's show foreshadowing ritual and symbology in film jay dyer is a public speaker and author of esoteric hollywood sex cults and symbols in film His graduate work focused on the interplay of film, geopolitics, espionage, and psychological warfare. He is the co-host and co-creator with Jay Widener of the television show Hollywood Decoded on Gaia TV. He is the host of Jay's analysis podcast, Esoteric Hollywood. Jay Dyer, welcome.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: In your book, Esoteric Hollywood, Sex, Cults, and Symbols in Film, you take a look at a variety of Hollywood films, including films by Stanley Kubrick, Alfred Hitchcock, the James Bond series, among many others, and explore the secret messaging and symbology embodied in them. Why do you use the term esoteric to describe many of these films?
2: That's a good question. I, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to title the book, so I had a bunch of different possible titles, and that one sounded to me the most mysterious. But I think it's also fitting because esoteric, of course, refers to something hidden or secret. And and what I tr- what I try to do in the book was kind of unveil those hidden secret aspects to film, be it uh, the symbolism that you mentioned, or be it the realities behind screen screenwriters and their connections at times to the CIA or the Pentagon and espionage and lay it all out i tried to come at film from a lot of different levels and so i felt like that was the most appropriate title and i think i'd already kind of been playing around with a podcast with a with a similar title
0: you write that hollywood has been described as the new babylon what does this analogy signify that is to say, what are the parallels between Hollywood and what is understood to have been Babylon, the ancient pagan empire? Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Well, if we think about the way that the book of Genesis, for example, describes the Tower of Babel and then eventually the the Empire of Babylon uh, during the days of many of the prophets in the, the Old Testament, uh, we have the idea of an oppressive... Uh, kind of super state right that was deified or, or worshipped one of the aspects that was central to that power structure was the mythology behind those empires every empire has its own mythology and i would say that that translates into the present day the british empire had its mythology and the american empire has its mythology as well and one of the ways in which that mythology is inculcated into the population or indoctrinated into the population is through storytelling. And of course, in our day, that is Hollywood. So many writers, as you said, have in the past, most notably Kenneth Anger with his kind of sex scandal book, Hollywood Babylon. I thought it was an appropriate image, uh, but I wanted to expand beyond just, you know, lurid sex tales and take it into the direction also of understanding how we're given our mythology uh, by the Pentagon, by the CIA and their influence. And it's not totally the CIA, obviously, the Pentagon, but it's also, you know, people creating stories and and, and using their, their creativity. But unfortunately, a lot of times the state co-ops that, uh, the corporate state, and gives us messages that they want uh, inserted into films as well. So it's a mix of both. Um, and that's why Babylon is, I think, a uh, an appropriate image. And if you go to Hollywood, you'll see the uh, uh, the old sets from, I think, uh, what is it, D.W. Griffith's uh, Griffith's Intolerance film, which is uh, from Babylon. It's the architecture of, of, of Babylon from a, from film set.
0: Well, then, how would you describe the mythology of ancient Babylon and how it relates to Hollywood?
2: Well, one analogy would be what the babylonians were famous for was of course astrology you know the chaldeans as well and the idea here was that we follow the stars who are in a a way representations or, or the pathways of the gods and the way we would make an analogy to hollywood is that in the 20th century psychological warfare and social engineering developed the pretty direct parallel to the idea that that the hollywood stars uh, could be the new the new uh, setters that we would follow. So they're almost like a replacement for <laughs> astrology in a way, like literally following the stars. And that was actually studied and designed by uh, ad men, marketing men, a lot of whom came out of the OSS, which is of course the predecessor to the CIA. Uh, and so it's a it's kind of a science. It's a technique. The, the Rand Corporation, the Tavistock Institute, they've all studied stuff like this. So it relates to movies and uh in a way you know you can have this idea of babylon as the gate of the gods right the, the pantheon of, of the, the celestial deities and whatnot and hollywood kind of represents that now it's it's kind of a a a gate to the the human gods right or the the superstars that we view as gods who we we think live this far-off heavenly lifestyle in hollywood hills or something and And really, you know, this is all concocted lies.
0: You write that, quote, for Greece and in debased form Rome, the stage was sacred where the dramaturgical interactions of the gods were actually a form of magical invocation. Although the idea of the theater as explicitly sacred is foreign to the modernity, it was not for historic man, nor is modern man's praxis any less religious in regard to the theater. Could you explain mm-hmm. why you begin your book with film as ritual?
2: Yes, uh, I think that the sentence that you read there is is attempting to do that. And so because the ancient world viewed the plays, you know, Sophocles or uh, even perhaps uh, Virgil's Aeneid or something like this, they, they were all viewed as reenactments of the the actions in life of the gods and what that did was at least in the the primitive mind was you were you were kind of representing that reality you were you were bringing it out of the golden age or in the, the times past or something and and bringing it back into reality a kind of invocation and even in for example Plato's dialogues you can read Ion where Socrates has a dialogue with some musicians and, and people from the theater and they talk about how what they really want to do is to become possessed by the god or to become another character and this is essentially what method acting is if you study Stanislavski or, the, or method acting so there is a direct parallel uh, you know whether one believes that it really is some kind of possession of an entity or just a you know a very uh, deep skill that 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 one takes on another identity or lives out another another character. Either way, it's, it's something that goes back to the ancient world, and we don't know everything about, uh, you know, how drama was conducted in the ancient world, but it was very similar to liturgy. You know, if you think about a Catholic mass or if you think about uh, an Orthodox worship service, a liturgy or something like this, the idea is that we're acting out through the worship service events that sort of transcend time and space. They they bring the celestial, the heavenly, or the eternal down to the here and the now, and although most people don't think about movies in that way or or theater in that way more properly, that is bound up with the history of theater and acting.
0: And what is the method? How is that taught? What does it encompass?
2: Uh, I have one book by if you're talking about Stanislavski's method, uh, you know this is goes by the term method acting. Many of the Famous a-listers are method actors, and I'm I'm by no means any kind of expert in this. I just know that uh, in his one of his texts, uh, he does discuss techniques and patterns for um, kind of letting your conscious mind sort of drift away into your subconscious and attempting as best you can to allow the character that you're trying to pr- portray to kind of come to the fore. So, and then he gives a whole bunch of other kinds of techniques of how to uh, really perfect this craft so you know i'm not i'm not a super expert on stanislavski there's plenty of people i'm sure who uh you know who went to various acting academies and but but if when you see somebody for example like um christian bale if you remember in the machinist when he took on that role he got very very deathly thin like he he got sickly thin to play this role uh, Jeremy Irons, you know Robert de Niro, these are people who attempt to do method acting, attempt to become uh, um, the character and and sometimes they can have a very deleterious effect on the body itself.
0: Uh, yeah, i I'm just thinking about a streetcar named Desire and what happened mm. to uh, the lead actress that played that role. Was it Vivian mm. Lee?
2: That's right. Yeah, that
0: affected her psychologically, right?
2: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. There are several cases in in the history of film where, or I guess theater too, but I'm more adept with film. There's several cases where people have said similar things. You know, the, the famous story of Jack Nicholson telling uh, Heath Ledger, "Beware playing the Joker; it'll mess with your psyche." And yeah, there there have been cases like this, and I I think it's probably real. There's something to it. It's not just uh, you know Hollywood legends or whatever.
0: In your book, Esoteric Hollywood, the first film that you take an in-depth look at is Stanley Kubrick's last film before he died, Eyes Wide Shut. Throughout the film, you write, The viewer's eyes are wide shut to the reality of the power structure. The power base is not the average politician, wealthy doctor, or lawyer in New York, which were the roles played by Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. What is the film saying about the real power base in society?
2: I think Kubrick is consistently telling us about the real power structure throughout his films. And, you know, one can debate to what degree this might have been involved in his his death or not. Um, and, and to what degree, you know, throughout his life, Kubrick had to cooperate with the power structure, like with NASA and the Air Force in making 2001. You know, that's all fine and well, but I think that, You know, when we see something like Eyes Wide Shut, I I think it's a direct illustration of, as I said, the real power structure. So it's not um, politicians. It's not presidents. These are, as Dr. Carol Quigley said, frontmen. They're they're, they're the people who give the masses the impression that they have a vote, that they have power, when, in fact, the world is actually run by far more wealthy people, oligarchs, essentially. So... Uh, if we consider the, the power structure, for example, between, behind the Catholic Church, uh, its, it's uh, pedophilia uh, cases, uh, and then how that has connected to a lot of very powerful politicians in various countries, this has been well documented by court cases and journalists for many decades now. I think that we get to see an, an insight, and in, uh, Kubrick's given us an insight into that very point, that, that the real power structure uh, is more like billionaires in the sense of, uh, you know, something like Blofeld, uh, from the Bond stories than it is, you know, Donald Trump or, or Barack Obama, they're more so, uh, kind of front characters.
0: Now you've used the phrase, uh, a cryptocracy, a cryptocracy of occult elites. Mm-hmm. So what does cryptocracy refer to? Uh,
2: this is a term that comes from a fairly well-known book by Walter Bowert, who wrote Operation Mind Control. It was one of the, uh, early texts on the cia's mk Ultra program uh right after john Marks wrote his book cia and the search for the Manchurian candidate two books that are not conspiracy books per se but actually do rely on uh you know a lot a lot of sourced evidence and whatnot so bowert described the the secret shadow government of the u.s the cryptocracy cia skull and bones all those networks uh, as a cryptocracy because of the fact that they do essentially occult or secret or hide their methodology. Now, it doesn't mean that that everything is secret. Some things are secret, some things aren't. But a lot of times this stuff is made public. So you can find, for example, uh, Dr. Jose Delgado is one of the, the MKUltra doctors. His books are public. He has a public book called Physical Control of the Mind. Uh, and so, you know, when Walter Bullitt wrote his book, he's saying, look, we can We can look at what the uh, cryptocracy has published, and even from what's public, we can get a clear enough idea into uh, the methodology of how the social engineers, how the think tanks, how the the NGOs, how the the academics, how how the the technocrats, how they all kind of work together uh, to foster the same overall goals, even though they might at times have differences.
0: I'm speaking with author and radio and television host Jay Dyer. Today's show, foreshadowing ritual and symbology in film. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, now, I'm hoping that people have seen uh, Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, otherwise they wouldn't know what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, could you sort of simplify the narrative of that film sure. yeah
2: basically it's uh the story of two uh, of a couple who's having marital sexual problems and their upper class uh elite sort of new york socialite level he's a doctor a uh, very successful doctor and she is uh an artist or an art teacher if i recall uh and my thesis on the on the film is that they they view themselves as sort of the top of the totem pole you know where else could you go we, we've got it all we're at we're the elite in a way um but they realize that they're encountering i guess somewhat typical marriage type issues and the tom cruise character is sort of tempted to to find sexual gratification elsewhere and this sort of leads to a chain of events, a kind of uh, snowballing effect of him kind of wandering around outside of marriage on the town and encountering a series of so-called coincidences that lead him to this big estate where there is a masked ball, uh, sort of a Renaissance-style orgy going on at this elite estate. And it does, I think, have very conscious uh, satanic and Crowleyan elements to the Uh, to the to the mass ball it's very much a ritual i don't think there's any question about that Uh, and that i think suggests that many of the elite are into uh, these kinds of occult practices uh, especially something like the 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 followers of crowley so uh what happens is that he he goes through the ritual but he doesn't fully embrace the ritual uh he he's he's hesitant Uh, And he is essentially kicked out and found out to be an interloper, right? He's not welcome there. He didn't have the secret password, the the Tom Cruise character, that is. And so he heads back home, and we are kind of left with the unclear impression that uh, maybe even his wife was there, uh, because she seems to know what he was up to. She has a dream about this. And of course, many people who interpret the film, they debate whether or not uh, either she had some sort of preternatural suspicion of him being there, or whether she actually was there—it really doesn't matter. Because the point I think that Kubrick's trying to convey to us, in my view, is that uh, you know the real world really does operate like this. This is the, the this is the real power structure of extremely wealthy people who are far above politicians. And the rest of the film's narrative, without giving too much away, if you haven't seen it, is that the cult essentially has at its it has basically all the the powers and functions of a of an intelligence agency. They're able to have Tom Cruise's character surveilled, followed. Uh, they know everything about him. Uh, they have moles everywhere, and they're able to even craft news stories to cover up uh, murders that the cult is is able to engage in. And this is really what uh, some writers have called the CIA, the the, the cult of intelligence. Right? I mean, that's who could pull all this stuff off. And as uh, many historians of espionage have noted, the CIA is more like a private, uh, private intelligence army for the Rockefellers. You know, it was the Rockefellers and British intelligence who established the CIA. So I think kubrick is roughly hinting at a lot of these different things. It's, it's a kind of a overall portrayal of the power structure, and that's why he called it "Eyes Wide Shut" because most people just think that the the world is ruled by uh, politicians and 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 bureaucrats and it's not it's it's ruled by you know uh extremely wealthy uh, finance capitalists and corporatists
0: you write that both polanski's the ninth gate and kubrick's eyes wide shut were filmed in rothschild mansions i didn't know that
2: um i'm trying to think off the top of my head um I don't remember the name of the estate, but I think I mentioned it either in the book or or somewhere else. But um, yes, I think um, the Polanski one. It's not uh, presently owned by Rothschilds, but it was at one time. And of course, the Rothschilds owned uh, multiple estates in Europe throughout you know the last several centuries. So, so it's not hard. That's not hard to believe, given the fact that <laughs> I mean they they had like uh, you know tons of palaces. So but yes uh, it's also if i recall uh the mansion that you see in um, batman the dark knight uh, the the you know christopher nolan Kristen bale batman that that's also the uh, the Rothschild, uh estate there and it has a very interesting history it's um it's a an estate that um that the beatles did a lot of transcendental meditation with maharishi mahash yogi with so <laughs> it's a very colorful history to uh, to that estate and i think it's since been sold off it's it does it's not owned by i think it's like a museum it's owned by the state or something now it's not it's not probably owned i don't think
0: you mentioned in your book and i just mentioned uh, polanski's the ninth gate now not only have i not seen that movie i wasn't even aware of it but for the photos in your book it looks like it's similar to kubrick's eyes wide shut is that it right is.
2: I think so. I think uh, they, if I recall, they both came out in 1999. They both have very similar themes. Um, Kubrick's film is not really interested in the supernatural, and uh, then the Polanski takes it in more of a consciously supernatural and Luciferian route. So this is another indicator, I would say, that you know Polanski was telling us things about the underground networks in the U.S. back when he did *Rosemary's Baby*, um, and I don't think that he ceased telling us kind of what was going on uh, up into 1999 with the Ninth Gate. And so in in ways, it's kind of a uh, a version of Dante's Inferno, where the the lead character, uh, Philip, I think it's Philip Corso or something like that, the Johnny Depp character is a book dealer who's led down into the underworld. Um, And he meets various characters who are seeking uh, satanic or Luciferian power. And without giving too much away, he, he discovers it in a, a way that, that he neither he nor anyone else expects.
0: You know you mentioned uh, Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. Mm-hmm. That was a powerful film. I've seen that several times. That was really creepy
2: <laughs> It is pretty creepy. I had uh, in fact we did an episode of Hollywood Decoded, uh, my TV show on it and I think they cut that one. Um, which kind of sucks because i think it would have been a really really cool episode but uh it never it never made it to to airing so uh, and i think they cut it because they decided it was too dark for uh gaia's streaming network so you know whatever um but it is a creepy film i think in ways if you go back and watch it now it's kind of silly it's kind of cheesy but there still is a creepy element to it especially when you know you look at uh the Dakota building where it's filmed and the the weird history of the Dakota building with the assassination of uh, John Lennon and um, other weird films that have been filmed there. Um, If you watch vanilla sky, uh, I don't think it's accidental that they put Tom Cruise's um, kind of fancy condo uh, in the Dakota building. Uh, which is a, a weird element. I, I haven't really gotten to Vanilla Sky yet, but it, it definitely deserves some analysis. Um, and then, of course, you have the the overtly you know, satanic element of trying to bring in the satanic aeon with the impregnation of of the Mia Farrow character. And, but I, I think we can't forget the other element that a lot of people forget, which is that her husband, who's in on it, uh, his whole reasoning for all of this is... Because he wants to make it in Hollywood. <laughs> so he wants to be a famous actor in Hollywood. And part of his reason for going along with this is that the Satanists in Hollywood can hook him up if he goes along with, you know, with the plan, with their plan for uh, for Rosemary.
0: You know, what I thought was very interesting and original about Rosemary's Baby was the portrayal of the Satanists? They were almost mm-hmm. comical and sort of pedestrian, yeah. right? Which was a real kind of a, an interesting twist. Uh, some that people, is good. yeah, a couple that could actually blend in with the general population, and you would never suspect a thing.
2: That is an interesting point. Yeah, most of the time, you kind of had this cartoonish, silly portrayal. And uh, if I recall, I think Anton Lavey. Uh, was the consultant and is is who's wearing the beast costume in the in the scenes with rosemary so um in the bed so yeah i think that um probably in the mind of LeVay, who was also a very cartoonish character he would wear you know satanic costumes and whatnot look like something from a b movie but uh, maybe at the same time he was also you know consulting that look uh satanism can also take on uh, a very subtle, mundane uh, appearance as well.
0: Uh, that's very interesting. I didn't know that Levey was associated with that film. I, I think that's I, correct. I had no idea about that. You know, um, while we're on the subject of Roman Polanski, in, in my view, he's such an excellent, excellent director. And mm-hmm. one of the greatest movies ever made, in my opinion, is Chinatown. Chinatown. Yes. And he directed that.
2: Yeah, we, we actually... Surprisingly, the the Hollywood Decoded episode that did make it through from Polanski was the Chinatown episode. So, um, I'm very proud of myself and and Jay Widener in terms of the the episode that we filmed uh, about about Chinatown. Which, if you're not aware, I have a, a TV show with filmmaker Jay Widener for, on the Gaia TV network, which you can you can watch on uh, Amazon Prime or through Gaia or whatever. But uh, we did, I think. 20 something episode 19 20 episodes uh a film analysis very similar to what's in the book and one of the episodes was at Polanski's Planski's Chinatown and i think once again um you know whatever you think of polanski we we do have an insight into the power structure because there it's the Los Angeles power structure William Holland and kind of a commentary on how uh, Los Angeles uh in the i think it's in the 20s if i recall came to be through corporate subterfuge through the privatization of of water and and it's just a very crazy wild story which is loosely based in in reality that's not exactly true but uh there are some weird parallels as well with the fact that william moholland is played by john houston uh or the the guy who stands in for william moholland who um and john houston the the actor director was according to Steve Hodel, the son of George Hodel, the famed uh, suspect in the Black Dahlia ritual killings, it's actually John Houston was in the circles, uh, very close friends with with George Hodel, and supposedly participated in the sort of ritual uh, orgies and and satanic uh, uh, celebrations that uh, George Ho- George Hodel was involved in. Um, so you know, again, what is Polanski telling us here?
0: So, who is making these claims about John H- Houston?
2: Well, it's in two different books. If you read the uh, Dave McGowan's book, "Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon," there's an extensive discussion about uh, the likely thesis that George Hodel was the black doll Dahl- or one of the black dollia murders, along along with uh, Man Ray. And uh, I don't think that the accusation is that John Houston was a murderer per se, but that he was a participant in their parties, uh, and that. Uh, That also is corroborated in Steve Hodell's book, uh, Black Dahlia Avenger, um, which is the central argument that he's, you know, he's, I think, a police detective or something, but he's saying that it was was my dad. My dad was the the Black Dahlia killer uh, or him and other people like uh, surrealist artist Man Ray.
0: But anyway, uh, certain people think that this is true and are, are, are making these claims. Okay.
2: Right. No, this is not my accusation. These are again. This is in Dave McGowan's book, and it's in uh, Steve Haddel's book, Black Dahlia Vender.
0: I'm speaking with author and radio and television host Jay Dyer. Today's show, foreshadowing ritual and symbology in film. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Getting back to uh, Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. What is the symbolism of the pillars in the film? For example, um, you have a picture in your book, uh, Esoteric Hollywood, that in the beginning, Nicole Kidman is standing between pillars.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, admittedly, this is a little bit of uh, kind of a loose uh, interpretation on my part. But we do know from Kubrick's films and his commentaries that he was very attentive to detail and very, very meticulous about what images and symbols appeared in the films. So there's no question about that. And he was, you know, again, a, a freak for detail and continuity. So uh, I don't think that scenes are shot accidentally or, or just because they look good. I think they do have a significance. And I think that the opening sequence with the two pillars could suggest, uh, you know, the ideas of masonry, the idea of the, the lodge with the two pillars, Jakin and Boaz which derives ultimately from Solomon's temple uh, in the Old Testament. Or that's how the, the uh, Freemasonic lodges adopt the, the two pillars um, in their system. And it's really kind of a, it has a, a multiple layer uh, aspect to it, to where it's interpreted to be different things. Sometimes it's day and night. Sometimes it's, you know, dialectical tensions between good and evil. Sometimes it's just male versus female. Um, again, it's just really suggesting duality. Ah, uh, two sides of the of the uh, Kabbalah. For example, the two pillars, the two um, mercy and severity sides of the Kabbalistic tree. Uh, you know, Albert Pike says that this is all what Masonry is based on. So, uh, I think that perhaps Kubrick is suggesting that. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that, for example, 2001 is is uh, based on uh, Kabbalistic ideas and imagery. So, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that that uh, Kubrick is including that in. Eyes Wide Shut as as well. So um, the idea of, you know, uh, Nicole Kidman sort of being half naked there. And then the idea here is that uh, you're looking into the secrets of how the occult elite or the social engineers, how they rule us is in many ways through controlling our sexual desires through the libido. Uh, That's a, a Freudian theme, at least. And there's no doubt that there's Freudian elements throughout Kubrick Films absolutely um and so i think perhaps what he might be saying is that you know you you in a way uh you're peering into what you think is the sex lives of other people there's kind of a meta fourth wall level analysis that's broken here with the fact that at the time tom cruise and, and nicole kiman actually were married uh and you know the, the paparazzi were always talking about their sex lives and crazy stuff like that so so there's that element to it. There's a lot of different layers going on here, but uh, you know the fact that we're looking through the two pillars and to to see the, the bare naked uh, uh, woman, the the A-list star or something, I think this suggests that you know Kubrick is saying you uh, are or a, are a uh, sort of a porn obsessed society. You're you're controlled by these by this uh, libido desire, and you don't even realize it.
0: And also uh, the setting, uh, the time of year, the season where Eyes Wide Shut takes place is Christmas.
2: Mm-hmm. What
0: is the significance of that, do you think?
2: That's a good question. I'm still not 100% positive that I have that figured out. But uh, you know, it could be uh, Kubrick is playing on the idea of the commercialization of Christmas, that this is another aspect to to how we are controlled through consumerism this idea that the the whole holiday is supposed to be about giving of gifts and 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 uh, you know self-sacrifice and that kind of stuff, um, giving. And uh, it's all been inverted to be about consuming, about uh, you know, think about the 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 lines of people that that stand outside of uh, you know to get the the latest uh, plastic thing from China or whatever. Uh, you know, it's a never ending kind of uh, consumer black hole that's what Christmas represents. Um, and it also could be that he's saying that, you know, that from the perspective of the social engineers, uh, it's, it's an, it's an attempt to invert the message of Christmas because a lot of satanic imagery is of course, based on, uh, inversion. You, you invert the thing to give it its dark power.
0: Well, yes, that's, uh, it's, it's sort of a jarring to watch that movie, with all the Christmas lights and the Christmas mm-hmm. parties and the decorations, and yet at the same time, the film's message is so dark.
2: It is very dark. Uh, is it perhaps talking about, you know, pre-Christian times of, of uh, you know solstice and that kind of stuff? Uh, you know, it could be.
0: Right now, in Eyes Wide Shut, there are many mirrors. Uh, you point this out in your book. Are mirrors symbolic, and if so, what are they symbolic of?
2: They are, yeah. I mean, this is kind of a a prevalent symbol in literature. Uh, There's no no doubt about that. And most of the time it refers to the self or the soul or the psyche um, and uh, self-reflection, self-actualization, perhaps, depending upon what context it's used. But I would say that in the context of Eyes Wide Shut, uh, one of the layers of the film is about the individual's uh, realization of of who what what he really is and what he really represents. So, for example, the beginning scene that when they're having a an argument about uh, sexuality within marriage and an attraction, um, Nicole Kidman actually catches uh, Tom Cruise in a lie. Um, she says, "Were you tempted or attracted by the two two girls that hit on you at the party?" And he's like, "Oh no, I would never." and and she's like you've never been attracted to another woman and tom cruise insists that he hasn't and he's lying to himself and she knows that he's lying and he knows that he's lying so there is a there's a another element that a lot of people miss throughout the film when you get focused on the esoteric stuff which is about uh self-reflection and about realizing how we all wear masks that's another theme throughout the um the film that's kind of i would say grounded in the existentialism of jean paul sartre which you know, Sartre said that we're all kind of wearing masks, and we're not—we're not admitting that our true, authentic selves. Right? Um, that's a part of this film too that people overlook.
0: Yeah, you talk about that. Actually, you have some uh, of photographs from *Eyes Wide Shut* in your book where there are masks on the walls of of the different interior scenes in the movie.
2: Yeah, the the whore uh, Domino when when Tom Cruise visits her apartment when he's you know, when he comes really close to cheating, he doesn't do it, but he comes close uh, with the prostitute and we see the masks everywhere. And so, you know, it's very, <laughs> th- th- this prostitute uh, has a line of books dealing with the sociology and psychology, which is, I, I would say a little bit out of place for the average prostitute. Um, and in my view, that suggests that she was actually a uh, part of the, the ritual. Um, so uh, it, it would appear that throughout the story, and this is my thesis on the film, uh, it would appear that the characters that Tom Cruise keeps sort of interacting with and by chance meeting, it's not by chance. He's actually being led to to the ritual.
0: Is human sacrifice a theme in Eyes Wide Shut?
2: It is because the beauty queen whom Tom Cruise's character had uh, earlier sort of checked on and helped through an overdose Uh, at the beginning of the film. She's, she has overdosed in the upstairs apartment, cheating with Ziegler at the party. She uh, later sees him and realizes that he's come to the ritual. Uh, My theory is that he was brought to the ritual on purpose. The whole thing was kind of organized, Uh, but she has said the whole time that she wants out of it. She's a drug addict because she doesn't want to be in this cult, but there's no way out of this cult. (laughs) and so whatever sort of strange uh laws or rules this cult has she has to offer herself as his redemption and she does uh, because you know she wants she wants out in the most extreme sense like she's willing to die she's already been you know trying to overdose um and so she says well i'll just give it up and you know he can have my place or whatever so uh that's my theory on this that, this is a class of elite. There's a strict class system. This is part of it as well. Uh, you know, Kubrick is a, a pretty constant critic of the class system, going all the way back to Spartacus. Um, Kubrick is saying that you're not going to to reach a certain level no matter who you are, right? I mean, in other words, you 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 can, if you're Tom Cruise and you're upper middle class, you know, lower bourgeois, whatever, you're not ever going to be in this class of people. Uh, and that's what Tom Tom Cruise can't fathom, um, or he's being inducted into the cult. <laughs> that's kind of one of the debatable topics in the, the end of the film.
0: Why do you think Stanley Kubrick's final movie, Eyes Wide Shut, is important?
2: Um, because it shows us uh, what really goes on. As I said earlier, we have been exposed to this kind of ritual Abuse in the Roman Catholic Church, um, this kind of of pederasty in other situations like Penn State, uh, Jimmy Savile. And uh, if you think back to the Dutroux affair in Belgium and the the elite of Belgium that were involved in that, I think Kubrick's giving us a a window into what really goes on. That's why it matters.
0: Can you discuss some of the movies that included foreshadowing of 9-11?
2: Yeah, there are a bunch of those. One of the clearest ones is The Matrix. Uh, you have Neo's information file that uh, that Agent Smith has on him. This, of course, takes place in the future. Uh, Neo's uh, date of birth is uh, 9-11-2001. And that's, I think, a curious uh, uh, thing to s- just randomly stick in there, especially given the fact that uh, the second Matrix film includes now, The Matrix came out in 1998 or 9, but the second Matrix film includes a giant terror attack on a building that is, uh, you know, uh, controlled demolition. So there's some weird stuff in there. Um, uh, other other films are a little clearer than this, I would say, like the pilot of um, the Lone Gunman series, which is the X-Files spinoff. Uh, the pilot aired, I think, six months or so before the events of 9-11, and you have uh, hijacked radio hijacked uh, airlines that are attempting to be flown into the world trade towers by uh, a rogue shadow group within the u.s government uh again i think that's that's very clearly hinting at something we also have a lot of films that were preparing us for the idea of the the large-scale arab terror attack um the first of these that's a blockbuster is uh, true lies the james cameron
0: was that an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie? It is. I it saw is. that. That was upsetting.
2: It's the first uh blockbuster Arab terror villain attack film. Now, I'm not saying that that means that, that uh James Cameron or I think it was James Cameron but I'm not saying that that means that he uh <laughs> was secretly involved in it that doesn't have to it doesn't have to be to be like that. I mean, what can happen is you'll get consulting you know like uh if, if you want to use aircraft carriers or or, or uh, military equipment uh there's a great book on this about uh the pentagon and the cia in hollywood um david robb his book on this describes how the usage of the military equipment requires that you kind of go along with uh, certain narratives that that the pentagon might might want like we want you to portray the military good in your film and then you can use our tanks and helicopters or whatever in the background. Uh, or it might be something like, you know, if you want to use our equipment, uh, we'd like to go ahead and start uh, maybe easing up the American population to the idea of the Arab terror attack. We think that the the Arab terrorists are coming to get us. So this, this would begin to be put into films. Uh, another film that not just me, but actually uh, Professor Elliot Gaines uh, who's a, a professor at something like uh, University of Iowa, maybe. Anyway, he wrote an essay a long time ago that's since been, I think, published into a book about about symbology in film and pop culture. And he also noticed a long time ago that the the imagery and symbolism of Independence Day, which came out prior to 9-11, uh, is chock full of imagery kind of preparing the public for large-scale terror events, and specifically... The demolition of, of uh, big scale buildings in New York <laughs> by this quote alien threat. And and again, if you if you think, well, yeah, but it's 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 aliens. It's not uh, Arab terrorists. Well, actually, um, if you go back to the Cold War, you can study how the military was using the alien phenomena in in uh, science fiction uh, as part of psychological warfare. Because in in the mind of the average viewer, when they're watching, for example, the Twilight Zone, uh, and you're seeing all these alien threats against the U.S. military, uh, the reason that the Twilight Zone quite literally had Department of Defense consultation was that it was seen to be part of the Cold War. Because the, the, the human mind associates any external threat as an external threat. It doesn't matter whether it's in fiction, it's aliens, and then the news tells you it's you know, the commies or, or the, uh, the, uh, the Arab terrorists, that's the way psychological warfare works. They know that the subconscious will associate the two. So you can actually use fictional aliens uh, as a staged fake threat to control the population.
0: I'm speaking with author and radio and television host Jay Dyer. Today's show, foreshadowing ritual and symbology in film. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, we're talking about examples of predictive programming in movies. There's also television. Now, you you mentioned The Lone Gunman. I saw that. Mm-hmm. That was just a uh, an incredible example right down to who the perpetrators were.
2: I would I don't doubt that there's uh, absolutely 100% CIA connection between between these groups and that's how the the message is put into the fiction in fact dean hagland uh from the x-files and the Lone gunman uh has given interviews where he said that when you know when we were on the set of x-men we would have cia consultants telling us what they would like to see in, in the episodes <laughs> uh, you know on set so you think what that's crazy no i'm just go look up uh chase brandon look up milt Bearden. They are famous uh, CIA liaisons and consultants for countless films. Everything from uh, Meet the Meet the uh, Fockers, if you've seen the Ben Stiller comedy, um, either Chase Brandon or Milt Beard, and consulted on that. Uh, the Recruit with uh, Al Pacino and uh, Ryan Felipe. That uh, was a CIA-made film. Uh, Kathleen Kennedy and her Zero Dark Thirty. I mean, th- these are all quite literally CIA movies.
0: Right. Uh, I was about to ask you, what are some of the movies and TV shows influenced by the military and the CIA? There's
2: thousands of them.
0: Yeah. And why do you think they have such a strong and broad influence on Hollywood?
2: Well, because uh, Edward Bernays said Hollywood is the most powerful engine of propaganda the world has ever known. So if you are a military Pentagon CIA person, you want to influence culture. You want to influence minds. You want to do the the basic kind of stuff that Sun Tzu talked about, making sure that people do what you want them to do. So, what better way than conditioning them through uh, fiction? How many people are going to see James Bond as opposed to you know reading some World War II history book?
0: Exactly. Can you describe some of the ways the cartoon show G.I. Joe revealed certain military technologies we have today?
2: Yeah, this is a very striking and kind of one of the most amazing aspects of the whole thing, believe it or not, was because uh, I grew up with, with G.I. Joe in the 80s. I was a kid of the 80s, and and every kid who grew up in the 80s uh, you know, played with G.I. Joe. And so one of the first tier, level one, uh, conspiracy things that you learn about this is that that's military conditioning, right? And and that that's not too far fetched when you start to think about. Well, yeah, I guess that does make sense. Why GI Joe was introduced to you know give the idea of join Uncle Sam in the fight against all the bad guys. That, that makes sense. But why is that crazy? Well, it gets a lot deeper than that because in the narrative of GI Joe, in the cartoon series in the eighties, I mean, you actually have. Uh, Episodes that are dealing, for example, ex- explicitly with the Federal Reserve of all things, and how the fiat money isn't real. And there's actually an episode where uh, Cobra institutes uh, Cobra currency, and he goes into this this uh, rant about how the Federal Reserve is fiat money; it's not real, and Cobra currency will be backed by gold because gold is, uh, you know, <laughs> the true true standard for how currency should be backed. I remember when the first time I saw that years ago i was like well that's kind of weird what why would that be in gi joe and then i started re-watching the gi joe cartoon episodes and i started noticing consistently oh well here's one episode that's about skynet and the creation of uh, like global surveillance uh, you know okay well that's kind of a science fiction thing and i don't guess that's too weird. well then another episode we start seeing a geoengineering weather modification i'm thinking well, that's a little bit stranger Why would that be in G.I. Joe? And then the next episode you're watching, and it's about uh, quite literally MKUltra. They're referencing uh, the military studying mind control. Now, of course, most of the time in the G.I. Joe cartoons, it's Cobra. It's the bad guys that are doing it. But in some cases, there's even episodes where uh, the good guys and the bad guys have to link up. Uh, For example, Cobra is a terrorist organization in the narrative of G.I. Joe. But there are some episodes where GI Joe has to link up with Cobra to fight a common enemy, and I'm thinking, well, that's that's very bizarre because did the military have to supposedly link up with the jihadis right to fight the Soviets? That, that was the American narrative uh, even into the 80s. In fact, uh, the uh, living is it, it's either I think it's Living Daylights, um, the episode, the, the the Bond film in the 80s, 87, I think with. Uh, Timothy Dalton in that film, Timothy Dalton teams up with a, quite literally a Bin Laden character, and the Mujahideen to fight the Soviets. So even into the eighties, you know, where they were still promoting the narrative of the Jihad and the Mujahideen as the freedom fighters, the good guys. Um, and even in GI Joe, at times the terrorists are our allies. So it gets crazier and crazier. You can keep going, keep going with with nanotechnology um, and, and all this this really far-out future tech was placed into the 80s G.I. Joe series.
0: How has the subject of mind control been portrayed in movies?
2: Well, that's a very big question, very deep question. When, it, when Hollywood began to consciously work with, you know, the narrative of something like Manchurian Candidate, if you've, if you've seen the Manchurian Candidate, you kind of get the presentation that the, the Soviets are up to this, and the, the commies are going to brainwash all of our POWs and all that. And actually, uh, Walter Bower, in his great book, Operation Mind Control, he makes a very powerful argument that um, that, that was itself kind of a psyop that, uh, that what the, the American military was doing was trying to have a justification for their own large-scale psychological testing and mind control uh, experiments. Known generally as MK Ultra, uh, under the guise of saying, "Well, oh, the commies are going to do this to us," right?
0: Well, you brought up um, you brought up the Manchurian Candidate, the original mm-hmm. one, which is one of my favorite movies. That's an incredibly mm-hmm. good movie. Um, yeah, it is good movie. Oh, uh, unbelievable! Starring Angela Lansbury, and that came out right before the Kennedy assassination, didn't it? It sort exactly of prefigured that whole thing.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, we did a long time ago, we did an article or a video, I can't remember, it's been several years, where we discussed just that very thing, the, the similarities between what you're talking about and uh, and uh, JFK. Um, there's also, uh, if you think of the Gene Hackman film, The Conversation, which yes. is a very, yeah, yes. that's a very well done uh, surveillance film where he kind of goes crazy. Uh, that actually came out right before the watergate stuff and uh, other people have noticed the the strange parallels to the watergate surveillance and and conversation so the the predictive programming aspect of things appearing in fiction before they appear in in, in so-called mainstream reality it goes back a long way you know it, it doesn't uh, it's not something that started in the 90s or 2000s i'm all i'm all the time finding examples like this and uh, and yes, uh, it's absolutely similar when it comes to assassination attempts. Um, there's another great example of of this that uh, kind of harkens to JFK and, and maybe to other assassinations or, or attempted assassinations in the, um, the the Warren Beatty movie, the uh, the Warren Beatty movie, um,
0: the Parallax View,
2: the Parallax View. Yeah, thank you.
0: Yes. Um... I always get mixed up about that movie, and I've seen it twice, but I can re- never remember the narrative of the thing.
2: Well, he is a reporter who goes into investigating these this company, this this shadow private entity that uh, appears to be re- recruiting psychopaths, people with uh, you know murderous and sort of psychopathic tendencies, and he's very curious as to w- what is the purpose of all this, and so he he ends up applying to to go through this. Uh, company's program. <laughs> it turns out it's a giant mind control program and they're, they're wiping people's brains and they are, are looking for the perfect Patsy. And of course, it turns out Warren Beatty fits the profile of the perfect Patsy. So spoiler alert, I'd kind of give it away, but uh, it relates to the, the, uh, assassination of a, a uh, I think a populist politician or something to that effect. So, um, so there's definitely some meat there it was in ways similar to kind of a, clockwork orange another kubrick film where kubrick is telling us about uh, the tavistock style uh, brainwashing attempts to to condition the public and the masses to have no to have no virility no drive no desire for change uh, to just be to be passive and apathetic uh, that's essentially what they do with the the hoodlum character alex in the film that you know they turn him into a docile sort of uh, sort of zombie
0: and finally could you describe what happened to your WordPress account?
2: Um, I was basically—I'd been with WordPress, I think, for nine or ten years, and um, they had, uh, you know, a very strong reputation for for free speech. Um, you know, my my blog didn't include uh, anything significantly dangerous or uh, violent. Never called for violence. No. Uh, no affiliation with any fringe radical groups or anything like that. Uh, so there wasn't really any, any cause for uh, removal, or in terms of violation of their terms of service. But uh, basically, the site was just removed one day. <laughs> so um, they give you seven days to export your site to you know to some other place. And uh, after a long time, I did finally get an email uh, from from WordPress explaining what it was. And the email had no substantive explanation. (laughs) It just said, it said basically the same thing that, that, that I was told when it was taken down, which was that your site violates our terms of service. So no example, I don't, I was never told what violated uh, terms of service. I mean, I've been there for 10 years. I was, I was not just a free customer. I was a long time paying customer with the uh, the premium platform, but uh, none of that got me anywhere. So, um, I was removed at the same time as a lot of uh, alternative journalist media sites were removed the same day.
0: Jay Dyer, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure. I appreciate it very much. Yeah,
1: yeah. What it is exactly clear. There's a man with over
0: there. I've been speaking with Jay Dyer. Today's show has been foreshadowing ritual and symbology in film. Jay Dyer is a public speaker and the author of Esoteric Hollywood, Sex, Cults, and Symbols in Film. Due out in December 2018, Esoteric Hollywood 2: Sex, Cults, and Symbols in Film. His graduate work focused on the interplay of film, geopolitics, espionage, and psychological warfare. He is the co-host and co-creator with Jay Widener of the television show Hollywood Decoded on Gaia TV. He is the host of Jay's analysis podcast, Esoteric Hollywood. Visit his website at jaysanalysis.com and esoterichollywood.blogspot.com. That's jaysanalysis.com and esoterichollywood.blogspot.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yoramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at GunsAndButter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at Faulkner at GunsAndButter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio.
1: of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life you know what i'm saying look what just you yourself for peace give thanks live life and release you dig me you got me